Well, so this morning we're continuing our very long introduction to the book of 1 Samuel. And, uh, and for this portion of our long introduction, we're going to begin where we left off last week with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to go through the end of Genesis where the family of Israel moves to the land of Egypt. Uh, so that's going to be this week. Next week, we're going to study the exodus of Egypt. Uh, up into Israel's entrance and, and life, really, in the, in the promised land of Canaan, which brings us up to, to Samuel. So, so this week and next week, and then uh, we'll actually begin our studies in 1 Samuel, which I keep saying we're going to do, but we're getting there. Um, and, and like I mentioned last time, this long introduction to our studies in 1 Samuel is purposeful, and, and so I'll set the context in this way. Um, the American novelist, actually, and the, and the Christian missionary, Pearl S. Buck, she once made the comment that if you want to understand today, you have to search yesterday. If you want to understand today, you have to search yesterday. And there's a great deal of wisdom in that statement as we think about it, because uh, really making sense of what's going on in the present requires uh, that we have a genuine and thorough working knowledge of the past. Uh, so, for example, you might have had that awkward experience of being in, in a conversation uh, with a person, maybe in a conversation with a close friend. And, uh, and in the course of conversation, you make a certain comment, and while that comment may have been fairly inconsequential to you as you made it, you can tell by your friend's reaction that you hit on something sensitive, and as you work things out with this friend, you come to realize that the reason for the unexpected sensitivity was, was rooted in some unknown element of that person's history. We, we've probably had those experiences either on the receiving or the giving end of, of comments like that in conversation. Um, but the point being that Pearl S. Buck, her, her wisdom on the matter stands. If you want to understand today what in the world is going on here, we have to be able to do that by searching yesterday. We need a, a working knowledge of history. And that reality applies uh, not just to matters of personal life in general, not just to matters of social life in general, but it very much applies to how we study our Bibles. Uh, if we're going to study our Bibles well, it's not enough just to drop into to the present context of whatever book we're studying. But, but instead, if we're really going to make sense of the truth of a book like 1 Samuel, for example, we have to renew ourselves in a working knowledge of uh, God's historical dealings with his people leading up to that point in the biblical narrative. The, the, the truth of the immediate context of a book like 1 Samuel, for example, that truth doesn't exist in a kind of historical vacuum. It's not in isolation uh, with respect to what God has revealed already uh, through the progressing narrative of the Old Testament. So to grasp the truth of the book requires that we refresh ourselves at some level in the history of God's dealings with, with uh, humanity and with his people. And, and I know you know that, but it's just good to remind ourselves of these things. And this is the reason why we're taking the time just to do a 30,000-foot flyover of the biblical landscape leading up to 1 Samuel. Uh, we want to refresh ourselves in the storyline of Scripture in order uh, to make the fullest sense of 1 Samuel possible. So, so we do well to remind ourselves of history. But in all this, we also recognize that it's not just a working knowledge of history that makes us accurate and, and, and benefiting readers of Scripture. Uh, because in all this, we also understand that there is also a, an extraordinary priority, especially as we study the Old Testament, that priority is anticipatory and that we are constantly, not just thinking historically, but we're constantly be, being driven forward in time to something that's coming. So we need both of these pieces as we study the Old Testament. And as we come to the Old Testament with our historical knowledge, we also need to understand and have practice working out the fact 
that the Old Testament scriptures are constantly also pointing us forward to the fulfillment of all God's promises and purposes that are going to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which we talked about uh, some last week too, but, but we're reminded of Jesus' statement in John 5, which we always want to remember when we're reading our Old Testament, where he's having that engagement with the religious leaders of the day. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it's the scriptures that testify to me. And of course, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, which were the only scriptures uh, during the time of his, of his earthly ministry. And so when we come to the text of the Old Testament, not only do we have this historical perspective, but we ultimately come to the Bible, whether we're, we're looking at two verses in Hebrews or, or 38 chapters, like we're going to attempt to do today, wherever we are, we're recognizing that the direction of our focus is constantly one of testifying to the supremacy, sufficiency, promise-completing work of the person of Jesus Christ and, and all that he's done. And, and, so, and so we come to the Bible recognizing that not only are we viewing things purposefully, historically, to help set a proper context for right interpretation, but we're also viewing things in an anticipatory way recognizing that this text is pointing forward to the climax of, uh, of history in Jesus's work himself, which is a climax that we need to continue to remind ourselves of even still today as we go on in our lives of faith. Because we look around at the world around us and, and whether we're, we're pressed by, by, by a world that seems to be spinning out of control or whether we're pressed down by personal sorrows or hopelessness, these things that can set in, ultimately what we don't need is a history lesson what we need, who we need, is the one that history is pointing us forward toward. We need Jesus and the sufficiency of what he's accomplished for us. And so we come to our Bibles with, with, a, with a genuine anticipation that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, our hearts will be renewed with a view of our Savior, even from 38 chapters in Genesis. Or should I say, especially in 38 chapters as we, as we round out the book of Genesis. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at uh, chapter 12 of Genesis through chapter 50, which takes us to the end. Now that I say that out loud, it makes me question my math. 38? That's 38 chapters. Good. Okay. I was an English teacher. Remember, not math, but 38. So we're going we're to need to, to go at a pretty good pace. Um, but as we go at a good pace, we can really gather all our study today under the, the, the theme, the main word of promise. Promise. And... Uh, that word promise is a natural heading for all these passages of Scripture that we're going to work through, especially as we reflect on the ground we covered last week in Genesis 1 up until we, we get to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Because we, we remember the fact that, that by the time we're only just three chapters into our Bibles, there's a sense in which it seems like everything is ending before it's even begun. So in Genesis 22, we, we read about how God exercises himself and the majestic work of of creation and he makes the man and the woman and he gives them paradise and and the lord charges them with with the fruitful and caregiving cultivating work of of his created order uh, but by genesis 3 we remember how instead of being faithful before god um, instead the man and the woman they decide they would like to take uh, the responsibility of determining good to themselves they ignore the directives of their creator and they rebel against god eating of the tree he told them not to eat from and so the man and the woman have disregarded the word of God. And as they do that, they discover that it has ended just as God said it would. Uh, to disregard the word of God ends in the curse of death. So God speaks to them and he says, uh, you were taken from the dust and to dust you will return. Death comes 
uh, in rejecting the creator of life's work. And, and while it seems that the narrative might and, and actually even should come to an end right there, it would be very logical for everything to be over right there. After all, how can you violate the one who speaks and, and sees separate from dry land? How can you do that and be okay? It seems like everything should end right there. However, we also know that God is the one who shows power in bringing light into darkness. Just like we saw last time, he brings, he brings light and life to the chaos of that primordial created world. And that same word of life now comes to Adam and Eve with a promise. And that promise is that through an offspring of Eve, an offspring of the woman, uh, there's going to actually be an end to the evil one, an end to Satan and the evil that has now come into the world. So we're set up there in Genesis 3 with this promise. There's now this anticipatory tension, which we felt all through the Bible last time. We're wondering, where is this son? Who is this son going to be that's going to rescue us? And do you remember that tension we had to live with through those chapters? Is it going to be, is it going to be Abel? They have Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Is it going to be Abel? Well, of course, it's not Abel because Cain, Cain kills Abel. So Eve has another son named Seth. She's very excited about that. Maybe Seth is going to be the one. But as we read on, while Seth's family line does call on the name of the Lord, it is Seth's family line that will continue this promise. At the same time, we get to the, the hall of death in Genesis chapter 5, and there's Seth's name with all the rest of them. Seth dies. He's not the one. Maybe Noah will be the one. He's, he's obedient. Through the obedience of Noah, God actually preserves humanity in the created order. Noah's going to be the one, but it turns out Noah's not the guy. He's not much different than Adam, actually, uh, by the end of the thing. And so, so, so humanity, after judgment and, and the flood and all of this, we just have this tension building. Where is this one? Who is this one who's going to come and rescue us? Humanity is still lost in this state under God. Uh, and in fact, it's something that the Tower of Babel proves, doesn't it? In Genesis 11, where, where we read that instead of humanity obeying uh, the directive after the flood to spread out, what does humanity do? Well, they decide to congregate and not just congregate, but they're actually going to build a tower for the infamy of their own name. Uh, we're going to do the exact opposite of what God said, and we're actually going to exalt ourselves in the process, uh, which, of course, uh, goes badly for them, as rebelling against God always does. Uh, but we see so clearly that humanity is bent on self-destruction. People are going against God at a personal level. Uh, socially, culturally, the world seems to be going against God. And that rebellious human posture that brings so much destruction and confusion, we just see it rampant all through those, those first chapters of the Bible. And, and at the end of the day, we, we, we have to recognize that while we see it rampant through uh, the scriptures. We see how in Genesis 6, before the flood, we're told that, that God saw the intention of our hearts was only evil continually. He says the same thing in, in chapter 8, after the flood, our intentions are evil from, from childhood. While we have this sin problem in our hearts, uh, we see this isn't something that simply exists in the biblical narrative, but we see that it, that it continues to pervade our lives to this day. This is the world we live in, a world lost from the way of life, a world set in rebellion against the creator who brings good things. We feel that tension today. It's not just a biblical story thing. It's an everyday life thing. It's a, we open our news feeds and this is, this is what it costs us. Somebody with a bow and arrow killing five people in Norway. How wicked is that? We have a world that is twisted up and lost in sin. And so we have the same question that the biblical narrative brings to our minds. That tension is there. Where is the hope for our human condition? 
it, clearly it can't be in the immediacy of our leaders. It can't be in the immediacy of cultural programming. It can't be in the immediacy of military prowess, social reform, all of these things. Where's the hope? Because we have a heart problem as humanity. So where's this hope going to come? And the answer continues to go back to the Genesis 3 promise, doesn't it? The son is going to come. The son is going to come. And through this son, ultimately, evil is going to be crushed and done away with amid rebellion and death, all of these things, God has promised that there's going to be rescue and life. All of this ultimately driving us forward to the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. And so, and so with all of that framework in our mind and the richness of what the first portion of our Bible is driving us forward toward, with all of that in our mind, we, we, we come up to the life of Abraham in our studies. And, and as we come to Abraham, uh, it's interesting to note how everything narrows in the Genesis narrative. Uh, up to this point, we've seen uh, generations that extend from Adam at first, and then they extend from Noah after the flood. The world is populated again. In fact, even uh, probably the publishers have put a little heading above Genesis 10 in your Bible that, that says something like table of nations. You have this, this nation of expansion that goes uh, from, from uh, after the flood that spreads out all over the world. All of these things are taking place. That The earth is filling up. Nations rise. But we get to Genesis 12, and the scriptural focus begins to narrow. And for the remainder of the Genesis narrative, the primary focus is this family line of Abraham. Because while humanity had gathered to make a name for themselves at Babel and, and rebellion against God, God calls Abraham and says to him, actually, I'm going to make a name for you. I'm going to make a name for you. And it's not just that God's going to make a name for Abraham. He tells Abraham that he's going to bless his offspring with the land of Canaan. And then with that land of promise, ultimately, which Joshua will lead the people into after the Exodus. We'll get there next week. But, but along with that land, God tells Abraham that he'll have as many offspring as the sands of the seashore. And through his offspring, all the world will be blessed. So here we are again, set down in this renewed promise of a son being born. There's going to be this birth that's going to bring hope for the world. And God seals this promise in a covenant with Abraham that's very unique. Uh, Genesis 15, there's this covenant ceremony that's prepared. And, and, and while we actually read that the, the setup for that ceremony is very typical of an ancient Near Eastern covenant ceremony. Um, so so in, in that event, uh, that there would be uh, animals that were, that were cut in half and placed in such a way that a path could be walked between them. And the two people entering into this covenant agreement in the ancient Near East, say two kings, for example, who are, who are coming together uh, to combine forces or whatever it might be, uh, they would each then walk this, this bloody path between the halved animals. And that was a, a symbolic statement basically saying, may what's been done to these animals be done to me if I break the promise that we're making together here. That's, that's the covenant ceremony. Um, this 50-50 this, this agreement, we're each going to do our part and we're going to make it all the way. And if we don't, then we're responsible for this. But in God's covenant with Abraham, well, while the, the ceremony setup is recognizable in Genesis 15, the way things go becomes very different. Because the, the animals are halved, there's this bloody path between them. But at that time, a deep sleep, we're told, is brought upon Abraham. And while Abraham sleeps, the Lord symbolically passes through the halved animals alone. So, so the, the covenant commitment God made with Abraham to give him offspring in the land of Canaan, more than that, the commitment that through Abraham's offspring, the whole world's going to be blessed, 
That covenant commitment between God and Abraham did not depend on Abraham and God exercising their 50-50 split business arrangement. You see what's depicted here? They didn't each pass through the bloody path symbolizing their mutual commitment to this task. Instead, while Abraham was in a deep sleep, God commits himself to this promise alone. God's committed himself to this promise that he's made to the point that alone he would bear the covenant responsibility of shed blood to bring the life he promised. You see the picture that's being given to us there. That the gospel is ringing in our ears at this point. That this is the God who would commit to bleed for the promise of life, take the entire responsibility of his promise upon himself. He, he will bleed for the promise of life and a place of rest for his people. So we see how even here in these early chapters, the, the, the shadows of the cross and that new creation hope, they're already starting to, they're already starting to percolate in the narrative. But, but for the time being, the anticipation just continues. And in fact, it was tense for Abraham at many points along the way. Abraham wondered, where's God's promised fulfillment in this? He told me we're going to have a child. He and his wife, Sarah, they're old. They're past childbearing age. Abraham didn't have a son yet. It seemed to be taking, taking so long. And so he does what we tend to do in our humanity when things aren't going according to our plan. We set up our own plan. And, and, he, and, and Abraham tries to make the promise of a son happen in his own way with his wife's servant, Hagar. This, of course, turned out in sorrow because God's way is life and humanity's attempts at circumventing God's way of life always end in disaster. However, the failings of humanity don't usurp the promise-keeping commitment of God, who entered through the covenant alone. Abraham didn't enter, the co enter, enter that covenant, uh, that walk. Uh, God entered it alone. He's the one who's going to make this happen. So Abraham and Sarah, they do have the son that's promised to them. Isaac is born, and through Abraham's life, God reveals himself as the promise-keeping God. Which for all that can be said about Abraham's life and his ups and downs and everything else that's going on, this is a reminder to us, even still today, as we wait for the fullness of God's promised salvation through Jesus Christ. Because we do still live in this tension of hope anticipated. While Jesus has come, we still live with this anticipation that Jesus is one day going to come back. And what does it feel like waiting for Jesus to come back and set things right? What does it feel like when we're looking out at humanity and everything is so broken and dismal? What does it feel like when we're struggling with our own hearts and the sorrow that's there and the shame that can be present and all of these different things we can be navigating in our life? What does it feel like as we go through those things? Well, it feels slow. Where is Jesus? Where is this one who's going to come and bring about the final and eternal flourishing of a new creation world? Where is it? We feel that sense of anticipation and that sense of impatience as we wait for the fullness of that. We can be honest and say that. But, but we come to the life of Abraham and we're reminded from Abraham's life that while we may be tempted to place our hope in solutions that can come from other places, you know, there are Hagar options all around to us. Maybe this will fix us. Maybe this will fix us. Maybe this will fix it. There are options all around, but we're reminded that God alone is the one who keeps his promises and he will do exactly what he's promised to do no matter how we may be feeling about the time. And so we're called to be patient and we're called to trust. We, we, don't, we don't try to usurp his promise with manufactured human solutions. Those only bring sorrow. We're patient. I, I wonder, maybe for you, I, I know for me, even as I was thinking on this this week, 
Maybe you need the reminder to patiently wait this morning. Don't we need that the, the world is twisted? It's discouraging. It brings us sadness. It brings us heaviness apart on a daily basis, not least of all as we have our own struggles and things we're navigating. But we need to remind ourselves that God's promises won't fail. And, and so we wait for the ultimate promise fulfillment that Jesus is going to bring at his return. God and God alone will do what he promises to do. He's going to bring life. His is to do the work, and ours, in so much of a sense, is to, is to do the waiting patiently and faithfully. Which, which brings us to the next section of the storyline, uh, where, where we consider what comes, what comes now in the life of Isaac, and then in the life of Isaac's son, Jacob. Um, in Abraham's life, God reveals himself very plainly to be the promise-keeping God. And, and, and then we, we get into the narrative that runs from Genesis 25 to Genesis 36. And there, God not only shows that he's the promise-keeping God, but he's the promise-keeping God who, who does what he's going to do despite and even through the, the significant weakness of those with whom he's chosen to work. God's promise-keeping power is displayed through human weakness, and Isaac and Jacob and all that goes on in those narratives makes that abundantly clear. Uh, and, and we see this even from the beginning where Isaac, uh, the boy, he finally grows up and he marries Rebekah. And, and Rebekah, we're told, she's barren and she can't have children, which, which of course is a point of, of, of sorrow on its own. But in the course of the biblical narrative, it, it's a unique point of, of disaster because much like Sarah, uh, Isaac's mom couldn't, couldn't have a child for so long. Now Isaac's own wife, Rebecca, she can't have a child. And what is going to become of the promise that's been made? All our life is centered on the promise of, of offspring, the son that's going to come. But we can't have children, so what's going to happen? But Isaac, he prays, and the Lord answers. In fact, he answers by giving Rebecca twins. <laughs> Isn't that just like the Lord? Esau and Jacob are born. And even before the boys are born, the Lord reveals that he's going to continue his promised blessing through Jacob rather than Esau, which as things go on, it seems so out of sorts to do things in that way because Esau is born first of the twins, so he's the older one. Esau is the stronger one. He's the, he's the outdoorsman. He's the hunter. Esau is his dad's favorite. Uh, we, we would think if we were just reading the narrative, clearly Esau is going to be the one through whom the promise made to Abraham is going to continue on. He's the sturdy one after all. But it's not Esau, is it? It's Jacob that the Lord chooses to use. And the Lord's continuing his promise, but not through the one we'd expect. And, and then as it turns out, Jacob and his mom, they're not model saints at all. They're, they're both deceptive. We read the story already. So, so, so Jacob, he obtains the firstborn blessing from his dad, even though it would, humanly speaking, have gone to Esau. Jacob usurps Esau in a sneaky way. He's devious. So, so by all accounts, Jacob, he, he's, he's the one we're told the, the promise is going to come through. He's going to be the blessed one. But he doesn't seem like the promised son we're waiting for in the least. Deception, it runs deep in Jacob. How could, how could he be the one that, that God is going to use? And then so we read the narrative and we have to be wondering, could, could God really be keeping his promise through this family group? What a messed up family. Isaac is a dad who favors one son over the other. That's messed up. Add to that, Rebecca is a mom who favors the other son over the other. That's messed up. Right? The family dynamic is far from commendable. Esau, he's angry that Jacob received his dad's blessing. He plans to kill his brother. This doesn't sound like the family line of life. All this sounds like is that whole Cain and Abel situation happening all over again. This is disaster. 
Will God really keep his promise to Abraham and Isaac through Jacob? Like he said. But of course, we know the answer. God does keep his promise through Jacob. God blesses Jacob, in fact, and names him Israel. So that's the name that's then going to carry through to the nation that will come from Jacob's family line now. And so in time, Jacob or Israel, he has his 12 sons. At the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel, he has 12 sons. And the promise continues. And we step back and we wonder at this whole thing. How can God be promoting promises through these people? Deception, favoritism, and so on. Jacob, he's, he's actually a fairly agitating little fellow. Right? He, he's, he's constantly worried and, and just doing what his mommy tells him to do, even though he's full-grown man and wandering around in these weird kind of ways, willing to be deceptive. How could God use this fruit? And, and as we ponder that question, we're reminded that the promise of God is, first of all, not usurped by human weakness and failing. And, and in fact, the storyline of the Scripture continues to reveal the exact opposite. God's power is put on display. How? In the most powerful and glorious people that we meet along in the biblical narrative no no god's power is put on glorious display through the weakness of people isaac has his favorites jacob's a deceiver he's a warrior there's weakness and sin all through the storyline of their lives and through them god is determined to put his power on display and then why wouldn't he because as we go along, there can be absolutely no doubt where the promise-keeping power lies. It's the God who passed through the covenant ceremony all on his own. That's the one with whom the promise-keeping power lies. And he's making that clear, even through the people he's determining to work through. He's determined that through weakness, the promise of life is going to come. Which again just reminds us uh, in the big scope of, of Scripture's storyline, reminds us of something that can be a great encouragement to us. Because we can get the sense that personal weakness, even, even personal struggles with sin, somehow disqualifies us from usefulness to God. Now, not to be sure, sin can never be excused, and we have categories for speaking about that and working through that. But just here in the narrative, we have this great encouragement that through the extraordinary weakness and failings of people, God continues to promote his redemptive plan of life. Weakness and fear, struggles of all kinds. As we read through the scriptures, in fact, Paul brings this up when he speaks to the Corinthian church. Not many of you were so wise and wonderful, were you, he says to those believers. As we read through the scriptures, these kinds of people aren't the anomalies in terms of the ones God uses, but these are the regular kinds of people God uses, the weak ones, the imperfect ones. God's plans include using people in their weakness to further his purposes of grace. And, and we ultimately see how all of this is preparing us significantly to understand well the way God works. His power is made perfect in weakness. It is this truth that ultimately prepares us to understand the fact that through the humiliation, pain, and rejection of a Roman cross, eternal final victory is going to be worked. You see how that doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking, unless we're trained by the storyline of Scripture and we see how God has always done things. Through the humiliation of Christ, 
the redemption that's been promised is ultimately purchased. This is how God does things. Not through grand, uh, grand expressions of strength that the world will look on and say, oh my goodness, that's so wonderful. It's, you know, no doubt God is in those things. Look how big and, and poofy and powerful all of that is. No, how does God work? He works through lowliness. Which is why when Jesus reflects on our own Christian resume, he speaks very clearly when he says the very first bullet point, blessed are who? Blessed are the powerful in spirit. Blessed are the ones who are, who are tightened up and buttoned up and have it all together and look so wonderful and strong. They're the ones who the kingdom of God belongs to. No, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who struggle. Blessed are the weak, the meek, those who are low and afflicted. Those are the people who are used by God uh, to further his purposes because we serve the Jesus of the cross after all. And so we can be encouraged by that in the midst of this, in the midst of this story. Isaac, Jacob, their, weak, their weakness is, is put on display in a powerful way. And so, and so we have to continue moving on. We, 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 we know where we're at. Isaac is born to, to Abraham, and then Isaac has his son, Jacob. Jacob, or Israel, he has his 12 sons. And as we keep going through Scripture's storyline, again, this narrow focus remains as, as, we, as, as, the, as the narrative focuses in on a, on a son named Joseph, one of Jacob's sons uh, named Joseph. And Joseph was, was, was Jacob's favorite son. Apparently, uh, Jacob didn't learn any lessons from his own dad playing favorites because now Jacob himself makes no secret of the fact that he loves Joseph most of all his boys. And Jacob gives Joseph a special coat. And Joseph not only has a special coat, but God gives Joseph dreams. Dreams that indicate that one day Joseph's brothers and even his dad are going to bow down to him. And Joseph instead of reading the room and seeing how much his brothers already despise him because of his dad's special favor, what does Joseph do? Well, he tells his brothers all about his dreams, no doubt, while he was wearing his very special coat when he was telling them about his special dreams. Special people who talk about being special are always the easiest to love, aren't they? But they're not. They're hard to stand. Look at this brother of ours. We can just imagine the conversation. Dad loves him the most, and now he won't quit with these patronizing dreams. Arrogant kid. He's basking in his favor and his visions in that coat. As we can imagine, his brothers didn't appreciate this at all. And so they take a page right out of the playbook of jealousy in the human heart. The brothers planned to do to Joseph what Cain did to Abel, and then what Esau wanted to do to Jacob to begin with. The brothers decide, what shall we do? Well, let's kill him. We're going to kill Joseph. But, for, but first, they throw him in a pit for a little while while they have some lunch. And, and we wonder, is this really the family line through whom the world will be blessed? <laughs> the, the, the tension, the tension of the narrative is just building. We wonder, how can there be any hope in all of this? The brothers, they, they throw Joseph down a hole. They decide they're going to kill him later. And some time goes by. And while they're having lunch, uh, this caravan goes by. And this caravan goes by who, who would actually buy Joseph as a slave. So at the last minute, instead of killing Joseph, uh, the brothers decide to sell him into slavery. Being the tactful young men they are, they dip his special coat in the blood of an animal and tell their dad that Joseph must have been killed by a wild beast. Jacob, of course, he slips into a state of abysmal sorrow, as we would expect. His favorite son is gone, or so he thinks. And uh, meanwhile, we, we know how the story goes. We're told so often that God is actually with Joseph in the midst of this total and, and, and scary disaster. Uh, Joseph's taken by those first slave traders, and he's resold as a, as a slave in Egypt. Um, and while the ordeal would have been so terrifying, he ultimately ends up in a management position in the house of a man named Potiphar. So all through the story, again, we're told that the Lord is with Joseph. 
Joseph may be far from the land of Canaan. That's something. He may be far from, from the people to whom the promise has been given. But the God who is going to keep promises is not far from Joseph all through the story. Joseph enters upper management in, in Potiphar's house. The trouble is Potiphar's wife likes Joseph. It's a, it's a Mrs. Robinson kind of situation. And she presses Joseph to come be with her. What's Joseph going to do? What is Joseph going to do? What do we know about Joseph so far? Obviously, he's, he's able to, to show great restraint and have great self-control so far in his life, isn't he? Isn't he somebody who really has a handle on, on, on how things are going and what's a reasonable reaction in the midst of situations? Isn't that what Joseph has shown us so far? No, Joseph has been a disaster along those lines. Now Potiphar's wife is coming after him. What is going to happen when Potiphar's wife goes after him? Well, we think we know, right? He's going to crumble in two seconds. But of course, that's not what happens. Because as it turns out, through the trials and difficulties that uh, Joseph has gone through, Joseph has actually grown. And he's grown in knowing the God who he can trust, which is something that trials always produce in our hearts as we go through these difficult things. Joseph has grown in faithfulness before God. He's matured as a faithful man. So rather than being taken in by the wife's advances, Joseph says, he'd never do such a thing. And this is what he says. He'd never do such a wicked thing against God. Against God. He knows that when sin takes place, no matter the violated parties involved, God is always the most offended, more offended than Potiphar himself is going to be. So Joseph tells her he would never violate God by sleeping with her. Joseph rejects her advances. He remains faithful to God. And that should be that everything's going to go wonderfully because Joseph has shown such obedience. Isn't that right? No, everything goes terribly. And where does Joseph end up? Back down in the hole again. The wife comes up with some concoction of a story that gets Joseph in trouble with Potiphar. Down into prison he goes. And while he's in prison, what happens? But God continues to be with him, and Joseph has more dreams. Joseph is able to interpret dreams. And these dreams, they make a way ultimately for him to be able to stand before Pharaoh himself. Because Pharaoh, he needed a couple dreams interpreted that were really troubling him. He couldn't sleep at night. And the magicians, the spiritualists of his day, they couldn't seem to get them sorted. But, but somebody remembered this guy in prison. He could do it. So why don't we get Joseph up here and see if he has anything good to say. So up from prison, Joseph is called. And Joseph offers an interpretation. And he does so not from a position of arrogance before. Pharaoh says to Joseph, hey, I hear you can interpret dreams. Uh, the Joseph back in the land of Canaan, what would he have said? I do, but I just need my special coat first. Just so everybody can see how bright and wonderful I am. And then I have, I have quite a bit I'd like to talk to you about to whoever will listen. That's old Joseph, but that's not new Joseph. Joseph has been trained by his trials to trust in the Lord and to see God for who he really is. And so instead of, 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 of approaching his interpretive gift with arrogance, instead he acknowledges that only God can give this insight. He says that right to Pharaoh, which is quite the bold move. Because what if Pharaoh says, I don't believe in your God and you're done. I don't, I don't want you. I need somebody who can do this. It's a risky move on Joseph's part. But Joseph does. He interprets the dream. And, and in these events, Pharaoh recognizes the wisdom God's given to him. So Joseph is placed in the highest position in all the land, second only to Pharaoh himself. And, and in that position, Joseph, having interpreted a dream that says that famine is going to come, Joseph prepares Egypt for this famine that's going to arrive. He prepares them for it. And the famine comes. And it's far-reaching. In fact, it's so far-reaching that it even affects Jacob and his 11 other sons back in Canaan. And while the famine brings this very real threat of death, Jacob sends his boys to get grain from Egypt because word spread. You know, Egypt, they were prepared for this thing. They must have had some good people in good places because they've got it sorted. So the brothers go some 20 years after they sold Joseph into slavery. They go to Egypt. And who must you talk to about grain 
but the one in command of the kingdom. They get to Egypt, and Joseph recognizes his brothers when they come to him. They don't recognize him. Of course, too much time has passed. Joseph is growing up. Um, Joseph is this, this favored son who was then sent low in the pit, sold into slavery. They never recognize him as the one who's ascended to the highest position of power in the land. How could you even comprehend such a thing would happen? They don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them, and he presses them in a series of events. He's wondering if their hearts have changed since their wicked actions toward him. And their hearts had changed. In the course of the events, one of the brothers even offers to give his own life to save another brother. And Joseph, he's not able to stand it any longer. He tells them who he is. And what could they do but be absolutely terrified? Can you imagine the terror that must have run through their hearts when they discovered that? Not joy, oh, here our brother is alive, but absolute terror. Here's the one who is in charge of the whole kingdom. And what in the world is he going to do to us after what we've done to him? What is he going to do to us? But what does Joseph do? He tells them to go get their dad and bring all their family to Egypt where they're going to be cared for wonderfully throughout the famine, which would have been a point, of course, of great rejoicing for Jacob. But Joseph's brothers, they can't get past the fact that they'd wronged Joseph so deeply and they were, they were sure he was going to kill them. And, what, and what, does Jesus, what does Joseph say to them? He responds to them in a very interesting way. He says to them, you planned evil against me. That's straightforward enough. He calls it what it is. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. And in that statement is a world of revelation with regard to how God keeps his promises, because we, we see that it's not just weakness and frailty that God works through to bring about his purposes, but even when human hearts are bent on evil itself, God in those exact same circumstances works for his good purposes. It's a reality that can be hard to get our heads around. Uh, but, but, and, we, and we understand how God is not the author of evil. Humanity, just like Joseph's brothers here, humanity is always responsible for, for the evils uh, which we exercise. But even through circumstances intended by evil humanity to be bad, God simultaneously intends his good purposes. In fact, through the Genesis narrative there at the end, we read three different times, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me here. Joseph knows. Joseph in Egypt ultimately meant that he would manage preparations that would save the lives of all those around. Through Joseph, there's a sense in which the world is blessed in terms of being spared from the famine. Could Joseph be the one we're waiting for? It seems like it at first. Could Joseph be the one? Of course, ultimately, Joseph, he doesn't seem to be the one either. He, he, he uh, leaves us with, a, with, with hope there for a moment, but in the end, uh, what he ultimately leaves us with is, is not the hope of redemption, first promise in Genesis 3, but a hope-filled testimony that points forward to that redemption. Because Joseph's own life and all its ups and downs ultimately serves as a testimony to God's good work in what is otherwise very dark circumstances. You just think through Joseph's story. Joseph, the beloved son, hated by his own people, cast down into suffering and what should have been death, ultimately ascends to the highest position in the land to save the lives of who? To save the lives of those who despise. You see? Humanity's foul and sin-stained purposes will not and cannot disrupt the final promise-keeping power of God. Uh, even in Joseph, we're given this wonderful picture of how God is going to work in an ultimate way to keep his ultimate promise. The beloved son, cast down to death, ascends to secure life for his people. 
Joseph's life ultimately prepares us to see how God works most climactically through Jesus Christ, which Peter vividly describes in Acts chapter 2, when he brings the tension of the evil and good and intent in one event back together, when he speaks about the cross, where he says, where he says, that Jesus was, he was put to death by the hands of wicked men. So there's that evil, genuine evil intention. But at the same time, Peter said he was delivered up according to the plan of God so that he would rise again to end the pain of death. There's the life that comes. So we have the beloved son, the wicked men who wanted him dead, only to have him rise and ascend to bring life for all who will trust in him. Which just brings us back to this reality that humanity may intend evil. We see it all around us. But in this woeful world, even in the circumstances where evil is intended by mankind, God works for the good of his ultimate purposes. Joseph in Egypt depicts this truth. And Jesus on the cross proves this truth beyond a shadow of a doubt. God is the promise-keeping God. And so the hymn writer says he moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. So, the family of Israel is now in Egypt. What's going to happen next? Things seem pretty good. Uh, Joseph's family, they've they found great favor in Pharaoh's sight. He's given them the land of Goshen, the choice land. And they begin to multiply. So the line of Abraham not only is preserved, but it's increasing. Um, of course, the land they're enjoying in Egypt is not the promised land. So, so therein lies some tension. And then as we, as we read into the next section, as we begin the book of Exodus, we read about how Joseph dies. And while his service to Egypt was amazing, his service to Egypt uh, is ultimately forgotten. And so what is going to happen? We haven't met the rescuer yet. We're going to feel our need for the rescuer as we continue through the storyline, as Scripture whispers to us, He must be coming, He must be coming, He must be coming. And so we rejoice in the fact that we know Jesus has come. And at the same time, we reflect on the tension that we have even here, this tension that continues, that we long for the fullness of His return, when all things will be brought, uh, brought right, all things will be made new, and we live in this tension in the storyline, even as we're creeping up into the into the territory of 1 Samuel. We live with this tension, recognizing that the Bible is directing us. It's, it's propelling us to look forward to the coming of Jesus. Let's pray together. <clears throat> so, Father, we're thankful for your word. Pray that we would have anticipating hearts, that and not only would we be able to look back at the finished work of Christ on the cross, but we would be able to look forward with anticipation and patient anticipation at that, knowing that, uh, while things may seem chaotic and, and wrong and twisted, your good purposes will stand. Jesus will come, and we will rejoice in that day. Father, for now, uh, give us the patience we need to be faithful. Uh, we desire to have our hearts trained, even by the difficulties that we go through, maybe especially by the difficulties that we go through, in order that we can be more faithful followers of your beloved Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.